Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Very glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and bad martinis for you today. Although the first bad one has a twinge of good to it, but the overall story is definitely bad. Uh, Jim, let's start with the good. Uh, Yes, it's still January 2023, but getting set for 2024 is a major priority for both parties at this point. And in addition to trying to win back the White House, the Republicans want to hold the House and win the Senate. Uh, The Senate, of course, right now, 51-49 in control of the Democrats, but the map pretty favorable overall to the Republicans. So we're going to talk about a couple of seats where things are either officially shaping up or potentially uh, shaping up. One is already held by a Republican. That's Indiana. We talked a little bit about that seat last week with Mitch Daniels thinking about getting in and the Club for Growth not too happy about that. Uh, And then there's also West Virginia. Joe Manchin is up in 2024. And so Republicans licking their chops once again. And maybe this will be the time they either force him out or actually defeat him. So let's start with West Virginia. Uh, This one's not official yet, but over at Town Hall, Jim, they're reporting that Senator Manchin may have some competition from a former Democrat who is seriously considering mounting a campaign against Manchin to unseat him. That former Democrat would be two-term, now Republican Governor Jim Justice, revealing that a run for U.S. Senate is highly possible in 2024. Quote, I'm seriously considering running for U.S. Senate. Justice wrote on Twitter, I want continued goodness for our state. I'll continue helping West Virginia no matter if I'm at home or in Washington, D.C. Manchin, meanwhile, has yet to announce if he plans to seek another six-year term in the Senate. Uh, Jim, if Justice does run, he comes in as the fifth most popular governor in America at 64%, according to a very recent poll, only 31% disapprove. And a couple of the people ahead of him actually either aren't in office or won't be very soon, meaning Larry Hogan of Maryland and Charlie Baker of Massachusetts. So probably the strongest uh, opponent that Uh, Joe Manchin could get to date if, in fact, he runs. The question is, will he? Because if he doesn't, I think Jim Justice wins this in a laugher. But uh, uh, that's one race. And then we'll talk about Indiana in just a second. What do you think of West Virginia? Yeah, I I don't quite want to say if Jim Justice chooses to run, will Republicans have this locked up? But it does really tilt the board heavily in their direction. Joe Manchin is 75 years old. He's had a long and distinguished career in the Senate. We've all seen him be the kind of pivotal fulcrum of the Senate over the last few years. He's probably going to be less so now that Democrats have a slightly larger majority in the Senate. You know, the question is, does he want to stay there? He probably does. And does he want to go through a reelection bid where, you know, if justice is running, there's a decent chance he'll lose? I don't think that uh, Manchin has much of a chance of losing the Democratic primary. But I do know that any outspoken progressive who chooses to run against Manchin will probably get a ton of fundraising uh, success from national donors who, you know, grassroots who don't know West Virginia and don't understand the politics of the state and the culture of the state. And, you know, that probably will make that primary victory a little bit tougher. Um, And then I think if you're Manchin, you know, do you want to take on the governor of your state? Or do you look at it at age 76 at that point and say, you know, 
maybe it's time to hang it up. I think you're accurate that if Manchin does not run for re-election, this is an almost automatic pickup of uh, of Republicans. And I think it's one of the great interesting things here is that you know progressives who have been screaming bloody murder about uh, Joe Manchin for such a long time now desperately need him to stay in that job, and that they've you know done as much as possible to make his life miserable, protesting outside his houseboat, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, is this a, a Republican pickup guaranteed? No, but it's looking a lot better than it did just a few days ago. So let's play a little bit of hypothetical with Manchin here. If he had just stuck with killing the big bill, Build Back Better, I guess it was called at the time, the three to five trillion, depending on whose estimate you count, and it just walked away and never done the Inflation Reduction Act, would that make him more electable in West Virginia or would the Democrats totally revolt on him? And now uh, do the Democrats get behind him a little more because he finally went along with uh, what they went along with last year and gave the gave his blessing to it. So is he in a better shape because he compromised or in worse shape? I think he's in worse shape. Now, obviously, that can change between now and November 2024. But the progressives did not suddenly warm up to him and Republicans who had been kind of, oh, Hey, good for you, Joe Manchin. You're the the lone remaining you know speed bump or or roadblock in the Senate. <laughs> and then he gave them a lot of what they wanted. And you know, uh, everyone on the right who'd been cheering uh, Manchin and Cinema, you know, realized they were not uh, the sort of things you could place should place all your hopes on. So, I think that cost him a lot of you know culturally conservative, uh, maybe Republican leanings voters who in West Virginia who had been supportive of him before and maybe in past elections. And I think most people say, you know what, if you want somebody who's really going to stand up for the progressive agenda, you're going to need a Republican. I think that's accurate. And I think when you look at what's in the Inflation Reduction Act with a ton of giveaways to the Green Movement, uh, that's not exactly in the best interests of West Virginia. So we'll see what happens. I think it's uh, a good move by Justice to throw this out there uh, that he's seriously thinking about running because that could impact Manchin's decision even before Justice makes a decision, but at least gives Manchin a lot to think about. Meanwhile, over in Indiana, we talked last week that Mitch Daniels, former Bush budget director, former two-term governor, former president of Purdue University, seriously thinking about the race. Uh, Jim Banks, the Republican congressman from Indiana, uh, he's been there for uh, a few terms. He was born in 1979, which seems really young to us, Jim, but it's actually mid-40s now, so that's middle-aged. But uh, nonetheless, uh, he's a guy who's probably most famous for Nancy Pelosi not letting on the January 6th commission. She rejected him and Jim Jordan, and that led Kevin McCarthy to say, no Republicans on this committee, except for the two that Nancy Pelosi desperately wanted, which were uh, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. Jim Banks is using that in his uh, launch video for the Senate. Here's a little bit about what he says he'd be fighting for and who he's fighting against. I've been on the front lines fighting for America First policies in Congress. I've been a leader in the fight to secure our border and pass immigration policies that put American workers first. I've led the fight in Congress to hold China accountable for stealing our jobs and for giving us COVID. I've led the fight on the House floor to keep girls sports for girls and to protect the unborn. And I've used my position on the House Armed Services and Education Committees to stop critical race theory and anti-Americanism from being taught in our schools and pushed on our troops. Indiana deserves a conservative fighter in the United States Senate. But the radical Democrats and the spineless Republicans are going to do everything that they can to stop me. Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden have tried to block me before. They know I won't back down. But I need your help in the fight to restore America. 
So, Jim, a lot of specific issues there. Uh, he's willing to engage in a lot of different things. Uh, he used the term America first, so that's obviously a sign that he would be supportive of a lot of the Trump agenda. He also used the term spineless Republicans. I'm not sure if he's referring to Mitch McConnell with that, but I'm guessing people like Mitch and those who are allied with him are going to be huge fans of that. But if Banks ends up being the nominee... I think he's probably acceptable to them, but uh, kind of all depends on who else is in the primary here. So what do you make of the bank's lunch? People might be thinking, I, I was irked at the Club for Growth ad whacking uh, Mitch Daniels and making him sound like he would not been a fiscal or economic conservative for much of his career. So why am I cheering or why am I feeling good about Jim Banks entering the primary? Well, my colleague Nate Hockman conducted an interview with Banks right before the uh, Senate announcement. And he, he, you know, Banks specifically addressed Mitch Daniels. Oh, by the way, Mitch Daniels once described Jim Banks as, quote, the future of the Republican Party. I'm sure that <laughs> will probably come up. Um, and he said to, he said to Hockman, you know, look, there are a number of differences between us, but I respect him. I called him this week to let him know I was running and to tell him I respect him. Uh, but this isn't normal in America anymore. And so I like, OK, that seemed like exactly the right approach, which is to say, thanks, Mitch Daniels, for your service. I think you've been great, but I think we're in really different circumstances now, and I'm a better fit for the fight ahead than you are. That's a perfectly reasonable argument. That is exactly the tone, that exactly the um, firm, strong, but not nasty, not needlessly divisive, just clear, I'm the better choice because of X, Y, and Z, and not spending a lot of time tearing down the other guy. Um, And I think there is an argument to say that Mitch Daniels, as great as he's been at 73 years old, maybe isn't the first guy you want to call for a upcoming six-year term. So as of so far, could this primary get nasty? Yeah, and it probably will. But at least for now, um, you're having a bunch of conservatives competing and, uh, you know, all kind of make the case of why they're the best instead of trying to tear down the other guy and just, you know, create a lot of bad blood that will have to be healed after the primary. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting fight if, in fact, uh, Mitch Daniels gets in, uh, but with the banks 30 years younger uh, and building himself a pretty good conservative track record here, I think he would probably end up being the favorite, particularly in a primary. And so, uh, you know, like we said last week, Mitch Daniels at one time, I don't know if he still feels this way, that he wanted to call a truce in the culture war. And there are folks out there saying, you know, from biological men and women's sports to, uh, you know, the, the agenda in terms of sex ed and elementary schools and so forth, that's a fight that a Republican has got to be willing to engage in right now. And if Mitch Daniels hasn't changed on that, I think that's going to be a liability for him. And uh, Jim Banks looks like he's fired up and ready to go. So we'll see who else gets in. I mentioned last week that uh, Victoria Sparts, uh, born in Ukraine, uh, recently elected to the House, I think 2020, also thinking about the race. So we'll see just how crowded it gets. But uh, meanwhile, a lot to consider. And another thing uh, that you'll want to consider is checking out the Watchdog on Wall Street podcast with Chris Markowski. Chris helps to unpack the connection between politics and the economy and how it actually affects you, not just looking at the top line numbers, but actually figuring out how some of those reports and the latest data from Wall Street and the Fed and everything else actually affects you, your kitchen table issues, inflation, job numbers, and everything else, and what uh, the Biden administration has up its sleeve uh, coming down the pike here. So check out The Watchdog on Wall Street with Chris Markowski. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini with a flicker of good, but mostly bad. It's right here in our own backyard, Northern Virginia. This uh, story first broke, gosh, a few weeks ago now because perhaps the most prestigious high school in the country, uh, Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, did not inform its national merit finalist recipients that they were 
National Merit finalist recipients, and apparently it's because they didn't want the other students to feel bad. But this is a major award, and it affects, and it's not like the the leg lamp in uh, Christmas Story, this really is a major (laughs) award. It can affect you uh, in terms of the colleges you apply to, the scholarship opportunities you have. My oldest brother, I don't know if he was a National Merit finalist. He certainly might have been. He was certainly a semifinalist. And as soon as that thing uh, kicked in and became official, he got all sorts of uh, just endless mail from colleges. So uh, knowing that you have that distinction is critical uh, to your college goals. Uh, and now we're up to either 13 or 14 different high schools who just didn't tell the students that they achieved this uh, incredible honor from Fairfax County, your backyard, Prince William County, my backyard, Loudoun County. Uh, And Glenn Youngkin is absolutely fit to be tied about this in the most congenial way possible, of course, because (laughs) that's just how Glenn Youngkin is. Uh, But here's him explaining to uh, ABC7 how ridiculous this is. They didn't tell them. Uh, It impacts their ability to apply to college for scholarships. And uh, and this idea of a, a golden ticket, as it is called, um, was withheld from them, and it seems to have been withheld, withheld to, from them for the purpose of not wanting to make people feel bad who didn't achieve it. And all of a sudden, we see it spreading around to the rest of Fairfax County, and we see two more schools suggesting that they may have done this. So, Jim, they say they don't want other students to feel bad. I don't know if that's code for, you know, a lot of uh, high-achieving Asian students, for example, might have done really well here. And I, I don't know what, what, the, what the rationale for that is, other than they think it's some sort of ding against equity that uh, somebody might achieve something that somebody else might not. But good on Yunkin for calling it out. And it's just despicable that this became like a contagious thing among Northern Virginia school districts that you don't tell people what they've achieved. Yeah, the idea of all of these administrators making the same error, and you can't see it making you know air quotes as I say that, is extraordinarily implausible. I think the only good news here is that no school administrator has claimed that the notifications for these students that they were National Merit finalists were in Joe Biden's garage next to the Corvette. Um, <laughs> I, so, uh, first of all, I'm all certain that this is driven by the fact that the you know, kids who are getting the National Merit finalist status don't look like the county or look like the America, as Bill Clinton said of his cabinet. We had a little bit of experience with this in our uh, household here. Uh, my uh, older, te- my teenager is exceptionally bright. I'm very proud of that. I'm the kind of dad who will gush about it. And he applied to get to Thomas Jefferson uh, Science and Technology Institute. This is arguably the greatest and finest public uh, high school in the country. They were involved in something setting up on a satellite run by NASA a few years ago, right? Just just picture like the the greatest, most high tech public high school you could ever ever imagine. Of course, you had to apply for it, and I think they took uh, I don't know if it was like the top one percent, top one half of one percent. It was exceptionally great competition for this. And Fairfax County Public Schools, much like Prince William, you know, had a reputation for good schools. So you get a lot of families moving here. You get a lot of families moving here who want to do well, who you know prioritize education. And for a very long time, Thomas Jefferson uh, High School was exceptionally heavily Asian-American. And as far as I, from where I sit, there's nothing wrong with that. They earned their way in there. Uh, in addition, you know, they'd, they'd studied hard. They'd gotten the terrific grades. We've all heard the stereotypes. I think it was the book a couple of years ago about the Tiger Mom, but Asian Ameri- many Asian-American families prioritize academic achievement and drill it into their kids' heads. This is what is most important in life. This is what's going to take you far. And every one of them, you know, earned their way in there. Unfortunately, Fairfax County administrators apparently looked at TJ and said, oh, that's this isn't good. 
because we got a whole bunch of Asian Americans, we got some whites, and apparently very few African Americans, very few Latinos. Now you want to have equal opportunity for everybody to get in there, but you when you have lopsided results, hmm, you know what? Maybe it's not, it does demonstrate that some uh, some choices end up getting generating better results than others. By the way, my son did not get into TJ. I was you know no, but the year that he did it, because they were recognizing they didn't like the criteria, they decided they were going to have a cutoff of what your test scores and what your grade cumulative ha- uh, had to be. And then they were going to do a selection at random. Basically, once you pass the threshold, there was going to be a lottery and that would decide whether you got in or not. I, I, I guess that's fair enough. I guess that's you know not saying we're going to dismiss merit. We're going to still have this selecting the absolute best of the best ended up with something that was not ethnically representative of the entire county. I, I, I don't but you, Greg, I was really proud of the possibility that my child might be one of the first benef- white beneficiaries of affirmative action. <laughs> I don't know about you, I mean, Greg, we just can't compete with some of these other groups and we need that extra leg up where we've been <laughs> oppressed for a long time as white Americans. They moved on to this different system and I cannot help but suspect this withholding of the national merit finalist, it's not directly related, is a seepage, is a crossover of this philosophy that some kids doing better than others is a problem that we, the administrators, have to intervene to prevent. We can't let some kids think that they're doing better than others, even if some other kids are doing better than others. All of us have gone to school from the very beginning. The same way we recognize that all men are created equal, but some of us run faster than others. From the first time we're picked for kickball in grade school, we recognize not everybody's actually created equal, but hopefully everybody's got something special about them and everybody's got something they can excel at. But pretending that some kids, you know, didn't do as well as they did doesn't do anybody any favors. And this is an absolute crime. Uh, and I'm glad Youngkin is on the warpath. Hopefully he'll get a lot of results of this. You're right. He definitely is bringing this like, I say, there's a cheerfulness that he, an amiability that it brings to everything. But I get the feeling he knows he's going to get to kick some keister uh, among some uh, school administrators. And I think he's looking forward to that, Greg. You know, it's called the National Merit Finalist. <laughs> that implies merit, achievement, uh, you know, uh, actually accomplishing something instead of, you know, going through some matrix of uh, different criteria. So you get the results you want instead of the people who actually have earned them. So uh, ridiculous. But uh, hopefully there's uh, a lesson learned here and not just on this particular program, but in uh, how these administrators look at uh, achievement uh, across the board. All right, Jim, on to our bad one. It's also, it could be a crazy one. Uh, The elites. The elites have gathered in Davos, Switzerland at the World Economic Forum. The uh, dystopian Klaus Schwab was supposedly not going to make it uh, there, but uh, sadly, he did make it there. Uh, And he's uh, uh, pushing themes this year, like Master the Future. And he wants a global collaboration village, which some folks are calling kind of an open borders uh, situation. Uh, As you pointed out in the uh, morning jolt today, and I'll have a couple specific thoughts on specific ideas that have come out of Davos lately in the end of our conversation here. You basically have all of these people who think they're the greatest thing on earth, who've decided how we need to change the world. And it all uh, involves you and I making sacrifices so they can feel better about themselves. Yeah, just kind of a further update on that last bit. Uh, Schwab was, uh, for a while, wasn't sure if he was going to be able to make it because 
Ironically, the scheduling of this year's World Economic Forum Davos Conference is scheduled for the same week as the annual Spectre Conference, uh, where they get together <laughs> and decide how they're going to kill James Bond and take over the world. Um, I think Hydra's next week. It's it's conference season. It's always kind of you know tough. Can you can you get your private jet to get from one place to another where you tell other people they need to reduce their carbon emissions? Um, yeah, so I heard about this in today's jolt, and I think one of the things that's that's only kind of stuck in my craw here. If you ask people, what's the biggest problem in the world, right? They might say global hunger. Uh, probably some people would say climate change or something like that. But um, I think, you know, some glaring examples that seem front and center in my mind, uh, you know, look, the, the invasion of Ukraine is causing mass suffering. It's had wide ranging ramifications for, you know, global energy prices, global food prices, uh, hunger, uh, you know, economic instability, political instability. Uh, one of the themes of this year is polycrisis, which, uh, Greg, as we know, is when, you know, one crisis, instead of being in a committed relationship with another crisis, <laughs> chooses to sleep around with as many other crises as possible. No, I, I, I'm joking, but the gist being that all kinds of interconnected crises that are exacerbating each other. And you now it's, it's a reasonable way of looking at the world. Um, I'm just glad, you know, I, I kind of figure, you know, when the Davos conference gets together and all these business leaders and heads of state and cultural leaders get together, Greg, and they say, God, the world is screwed up. Greg, where do they shift the blame? To us. I was going to say, like, you because know, you, know, you guys are the ones running the world. Why are you mad at us? You know, the world's screwed up. That's on you. And I guess that's the thing is you look at panel after panel, particularly emphasizing climate change and getting people to eat bugs and not own anything and, uh, you know, ride sharing and you're not going to have a car. You know, all these different ways in which they can come up with improving the world that require us to give up stuff. One, I don't see them giving up very much. But secondly, you driving your SUV, eating your Big Mac, living in your home, you're really not the problem in this world. I know they want to pretend it is, but you know what I think the problem in the world is? How about Xi Jinping? Right? How about Vladimir Putin? How about North Korea so, you know, setting off nukes and stuff like that? The world has some really big, scary problems. But the Davos crowd is just seems kind of bored by that. You know, they don't seem all that interested in getting to, you know, you know that, that's hard. But you figuring out some way to change your life and tell you you're not allowed to have things, that's relatively easy. It's an old joke about e economics that, you know, the, the like the drunk who lost his keys somewhere and he keeps looking under the streetlight. And somebody says, did you lose your keys there? He's like, no, but the light is better here, right? <laughs> Regulating the lives of ordinary Westerners just trying to get, you know, make a living. That's very easy. That's where the light is. You actually want to solve the problems of the world. You got to go into the darkness. And sometimes it's really scary and dark, which is why I suspect Yavos likes to get together, have their sumptuous meals, fly in in their private jets, have a great time. Apparently... Hang out with some of the first-class escorts you're ever going to find anywhere. That's how they really choose to get together and save the world, Greg. Yeah, yeah. I just saw that story about uh, <clears throat> the ladies who are available uh, at, at Davos. Uh, quite a quite an increase from the usual selection in Davos. Uh, so clearly, the uh, the high moral fiber it's, of, uh, Greg, of the world's it's a elite. global conference. You need global prostitutes. You can't just let the Swiss women handle that. Come on, we need to be committed to diversity in every aspect of our lives. So last year, I think it was at Davos, it was, it was at the World Economic Forum uh, of some sort, there was a guy there talking about the individual carbon tracker, and it was being pitched as, this is so you can know what your carbon output is so that you can make changes in your life. Do you really think it's for your own personal use? 
no, it's so somebody else knows how much carbon you're supposedly using and how you're driving and what you're eating. And if you're having too much meat, uh, it's, you know, it's like the social credit system over in China. But the Telegraph, the UK Telegraph, there's a column there uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about how this isn't just staying in the Davos faculty lounge. Uh, it's coming out in actual policy in the UK and in France. And so uh, this guy, Paul Homewood, writes that uh, in uh, London, they're setting speed limits now. Uh, You can't go faster than 64 miles per hour. Uh, In London, uh, the mayor there is championing the expansion of a specific charge, which will kill road traffic into the capital. Other cities with congestion or pollution, like Birmingham, will likely follow suit. Leaders in Oxford and Canterbury, meanwhile, have proposed what many will fear turn out to be effectively restrictions on driving from one zone of their cities to another, unless you have a permit, cha-ching, or are willing to pay a hefty fee. Cha-ching. Meanwhile, in France, they're talking about banning short-haul flights between cities that are connected by a train ride of under two and a half hours. So, uh, Jim, when you, you factor in everything we've talked about with uh, green vehicles not being able to be produced at the demand that uh, you can with internal combustion engines and all this stuff, it's getting a little creepier. It's getting a lot creepier, in fact, because it's not just theoretical now. People are actually trying to make this happen. Yeah. Look, you know, by the way, what you mentioned earlier, Greg, about the idea of, you know, voluntarily carrying around some device that would measure your daily carbon emission output. God, that'd be like, you know, putting something into your house that could listen to everything and then report that data back to someone. Anyway, <laughs> don't forget that you can get the Three Martini Lunch podcast on your Alexa device or Echo or any other device that's listening to everything you say. Just say, hey, Alexa, play the Three Martini Lunch. Actually, I probably just activated all your devices just by saying that. <laughs> Uh, maybe they're on headphones. But yes, yes, this is exactly where these people want to go. And unfortunately, they have too many willing uh, political leaders to go along with them, including in this country, if the numbers in the Congress were in their direction. So that's why elections matter to bring it full circle today and where we're heading in 2024. So, Jim, a lot to chew on today. I'm sure we'll have more tomorrow. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. Thank you very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please, please keep those coming. As Jim said, if you're, if you're willing to have one of those devices in your house, you can get us there. I don't recommend those devices in your house, but as long as you're going to do it, say play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Tuesday and join us again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.